right, well, would you bow your heads with me? Let's ask, ask God's blessing on our time. Father, I thank you for an opportunity to sing to you, to turn our eyes to you now as we look at your word, and to hear from you. I pray that you would help me to speak clearly in a way that can be understood, and I pray that you would be with our minds, help us to focus and to learn. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This morning... Uh, we are going to be in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15. Now, this book is called Acts because it is the Acts of the risen Lord Jesus. After he ascended into heaven, he rose from the grave on the third day after he was killed. He ascended into heaven on the 40th day after appearing to countless people, speaking, teaching about the Old Testament, how it all pointed to him. Jesus ascended, took the heavenly throne where he is preparing a place for us, and one day will return as judge and bring about the fullness of the new creation and fix all that is wrong with this world. That's the Christian hope. This book is about the acts of the risen Lord Jesus that he is doing through his disciples and through the early church. So this is really a, the first ever church history. And we are in Acts chapter 15, which if you grab in front of you, there's a a Bible uh, in the chair underneath the chair in front of you, um, if you want to follow along. It's on page 1574. 1574 is where Acts 15 is, and um, we'll be tackling that first half of that chapter together. Now, for those of you who maybe you're, you're newer here or it's your first time, I just want to say um, that this could be like jumping into the middle of uh, a movie. Have you ever, I don't know, maybe like a movie series, have you ever um, watched the Marvel movies, anybody? Raise your hand if you've ever watched any of the Avengers Marvel movies. No? Or, or any, any, any movie series at all. Uh, if you've watched a movie series, can you imagine if you like just jumped into the middle? Like the Star Wars or something. It, it would be a little challenging. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't be completely You'd kind of maybe all follow some of the plot, but it, that might be what it today feels like a little bit, right? Jumping into the middle of the book of Acts, um, and, and it's like, wow, all these characters we haven't heard about. And so I'll try to make it as clear as I can, but stick with me, right? The Bible is a, a huge book, and as we work through it, we're always learning. I'm always learning. I've been studying the Bible most of my life, and I am still learning. So the book of Acts, chapter 15, is where we'll be today. Now... For those of you who have followed Jesus for a while, here's a question for you. Have you ever been in a place where you, you felt like, man, things are really good in my Christian life. I'm, I'm following the Lord. Things are okay. I'm learning. I'm growing. And then um, you talked with someone that was also a Christian, or you heard some sermon, or you, you read a book about the Christian life, and you were like, wow, maybe I'm just a total failure at this whole Christian thing. Maybe I need to be doing parenting like that. Maybe I need to be dressing like them, right? If I really wanted to be godly, I'd be wearing that type of outfit or whatever it is, right? Um, maybe my whole 
Christian life would be so much better if I left this place and was a part of that group of Christians because, man, that group really has it figured out. Some Christians have experienced things like this where you, you talk with somebody and you're like, man, am I even a Christian? They're so far beyond me. They've got it figured out. Now, the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God can and truly does convict us at times as we try to follow Jesus, that, man, we really need to grow. Man, I want to be like that person, and that doesn't, that's not always a bad thing, right? Mentors, people that we aspire to be like, God uses those people in our lives. Sometimes we can feel like things are really good in our Christian life, everything's great, and God and I are cool, or whatever you want to say. And, and actually, the reality is we've got a lot of blind spots. In, my, in our lives. Like the dad who's like, I ain't got no problem with my parenting. Oh, ask your kids, right? <laughs> blind spots. I've got them. We all have blind spots. So I'm not talking about uh, blind spots here, right? We can all grow. But I'm talking about you thought you were doing well and maybe you really were and all of a sudden somebody comes along and, and derails your confidence. Do I really know Jesus? That's what's going to happen in our passage today. Um, one of Satan's favorite ways of derailing Christians in their walk with Jesus, taking away their joy in Christ, is by coming in, using false teaching to strap to the gospel of Jesus, take on to the gospel of Jesus, the good news about what Jesus has done for us, some extra stuff, some extra baggage. So the gospel train is going, and Satan loves to pile on some baggage. Well, yeah, I know that Jesus is your Savior, and your sins are forgiven, and, and, and yet there's all these extra laws and rules and behaviors. Some of them have the appearance of wisdom, but at the end of the day, they're not essential for following Jesus and living by faith in him. So... Um, what we're going to see here in Acts 15 is that the ancient church of Antioch, which is right near the Mediterranean Sea, it's about to face a huge challenge in their faith in Jesus. And it's not going to come from persecution, hardship, that um, we've been reading about in the previous chapters of Acts. Like two, last week, the Apostle Paul got stoned to death almost for his faith. Well, this challenge is going to come from within the church. Not people throwing stones at the church, but people sneaking into the church and spreading heresy. False teaching. People saying, you know what? That's great that you're following Jesus. It's not enough. You've got to do more. So what these false teachers are doing is they're saying that Christians that are Gentiles. Anyone is anybody here today Jewish? Like pure 100% Jewish? No. You're all Gentiles. So when you hear me talking about Gentile, it just it's it's a word for non-Jewish person. Okay, Jesus was a Jew. He's the Jewish king in the line of David. We're all Gentiles. So if we follow the Jewish king, we're we're part of the Jewish family because we are following the Jewish king. Jesus, not because we're biologically Jewish. So these issues back in this ancient church context were, were really big, right? And so 
um, the Jews, uh, there was false teachers coming in from the Jewish city of Jerusalem, and they were traveling way up north to Antioch, which was mostly a non-Jewish church, a Gentile church, and they were saying that um, the, the Gentiles who had come to faith in Jesus needed to start obeying the law of Moses that was found in the Pentateuch in their Bibles. This passage today in Acts 15 is all about how the church of Jesus worked through that issue. The main idea, which I printed for you on the back of your bulletin, you can follow along there. Um, the main idea is that because God accepts us by the grace of Jesus through faith, through trust in him, we're not under the burden of the law of Moses. So I'm going to work us through the first half of Acts 15 in four steps. In verses 1 to 3, we're going to see the heresy in Antioch, that false teaching. Second, in verses 4 to 21, we'll read about the council in Jerusalem to address this heresy. So there's this false teaching, and so they gather together this big powwow of the Christians in Jerusalem to talk about how are we going to deal with this. And then third, in verses 22 to 29, we learn of a letter that is carried to the church of Antioch with the final decision. And fourth and finally, we're going to read about the resolution to the issue that the letter brings. So the letter is going to bring about some resolution. So the heresy in Antioch, the council in Jerusalem, the letter, and the resolution. So as, as we work through, hopefully that will be like a little roadmap so you don't get lost. First, the heresy in Antioch. Anybody ever heard the word heresy before or heretic? Um, that's not a word we should sling around lightly, right? A, a heretic is someone who believes and teaches something that goes completely against what is accepted by the church of Jesus and by the apostles of Jesus. It goes against the Bible, like flatly against the Bible. Now, there are people who love to sling the word heretic at other Christians for all sorts of reasons. Like, if you don't agree with my tiny little tribe within Christianity, then you're a heretic. All right? That's not our posture here, right? We, we pray for other churches. We may have disagreements about small things, but we agree on Jesus. Team Jesus. All right? And, and so we, we want to be careful. We don't want to throw the word heretic at somebody lightly. It should be saved for the most serious of deviations for things that are so serious that they could make people not trust in Jesus anymore get them trusting in other things to get them a good standing in God's presence which is what we see in Acts 15 so verses 1 to 3 if you want to follow along as I read um, this might be helpful Acts 15 verse 1 to 3 certain people came down from Judea to Antioch, and we're teaching the believers. And here's what they're teaching them. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem and to see the apostles and elders about this question. 
The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles have been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. All right. So here in, in one verse, we're given a summary of what these heretical teachers are saying in Antioch. Again, the church in Antioch, which is right on the coast of the Mediterranean, way north of Jerusalem, is a mostly Gentile church. They're not Jewish. Their children were not circumcised on the eighth day after their birth as Jewish babies were. Now, remember what I said about this whole, like, watching a movie in the middle of a series? That, if, you're, if you're not familiar with the Jewish tradition of circumcision and why they did that, it might be like, why are we talking about that? That's weird, right? Well, th these Jewish babies were circumcised, and this is in accordance with the traditions and the law of Moses in the Old Testament. You can read about it that in the first part of our Bibles. Circumcision was a Jewish identity marker that had been given to Abraham, who was the father of the Israelite nation. Father Abraham. This was way back at the beginning of the Bible story in Genesis chapter 17. Now, circumcision was an external operation done to a baby boy to remove a piece of flesh that quite symbolically was linked to the place where future seed, future offspring, future Israelites would be produced. We don't have the time to go back to Genesis and give you a whole theology of why this happened. I'll spare you that for now, right? But just remember this. That operation was to mark off Jewish people, Israelite people, as being God's people. And that piece of flesh that was removed, it was a symbol of the fact that all people, including God's people, have this problem with our, our, our flesh. Not just that piece, but all our flesh. Our bodies have a problem. They want to disobey God. And so what we need to do is cut that impulse off. That's a symbol. Like, our bodies don't want to do... Like, how about your kid? Does your kid's body naturally want to do everything you, you say? No. We are inborn with rebellion towards our Creator. God says do this. We're like, eh. Talk to you about that later, because I'm doing my way, right? And so that is the fleshly impulse to eat more than we should, to um, take more than is ours. So that fleshly impulse that gets out of control and needs to be guided by the Spirit of God, um, be controlled by God's Word and God's Spirit, not just by every fleshly impulse. So circumcision was a mark that God's people should be done with the flesh and not live that way. Now, obviously, hacking off a piece of flesh does nothing for your heart. Like, if I cut off my hand, is that going to stop me from hurting people? No, it's a sign. It's a symbol. I'll just use my other hand, right? Um, and so circumcision points to the God's people's unique identity as Jews. So... If you wanted to become a part of God's people before Jesus, and you weren't Jewish, you had to be circumcised and become a part of the people of God. 
you also had to keep the whole law of Moses if you wanted to be saved. If you messed up, you had to offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of your sins. There was a whole system back then. We can read about it in the first chunk of our Bibles. But now that Jesus has come, all this was changing. Still, it was taking a while for the church to work out all the details of what it meant that Jesus had come and things were changing. So in our story today, some Jews come and tell the Gentiles, these non-Jewish people who have followed Jesus in Antioch, you can't find salvation in Jesus if you don't also have a little operation and get rid of some flesh. And also, we'll find out in a minute, they're saying you also have to keep all the laws of Moses. Not just that one, but all of them. That's just the entry point. You become Jewish by receiving this sign in your flesh, and then you got to obey everything. We'll talk more about that in a minute. They're saying Jesus is important, but Jesus is not enough. Okay? That's why this is so serious. They're saying, if you want to become fully part of the people of God, the real deal, and find forgiveness of your sins on the last day when Jesus appears again, if you want to be saved, then you've got to obey the whole law of Moses. So, in verse... Two, Paul and Barnabas, these missionaries who had come from Antioch and they're, who had come to Antioch from Jerusalem, seen a lot of work done, these missionaries are now saying, no, these guys, these heretics, they're dead wrong. And this dispute becomes so serious that they're commissioned, Paul and Barnabas are commissioned to go to Jerusalem to talk to the apostles of Jesus there guys like Peter and James, and get them to weigh in with their authority on this crucial issue. All right? You guys walk with Jesus. P Peter, you know, Peter, the, the, uh, one of the leaders of the early church. You, you walk with Jesus. Tell us what Jesus thought. You know? So Paul and Barnabas go to talk to Peter and these Christians in Jerusalem to figure it out. And this is what we'll see next in chapter 15. This is the second point on your bulletin, if you're following along. A council in Jerusalem. The big powwow, okay? This is a huge event. The first thing that happens in Jerusalem, we'll see, is there's a report given. Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Everything God had done through them, and specifically, everything God had done and was doing in Antioch and all over the world among Gentiles. That's their main focus. God is saving Gentiles. Gentiles are turning by the thousands to Jesus. If you've been with us up till now, you've, you've seen that. Chapter 13, chapter 14, all the way up. Gentiles, non-Jewish people, are coming to worship the Jewish king who was raised from the dead has claimed all authority in heaven and earth. And so what they're saying is that um, they're, 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 they're giving all of these reports about Gentiles being saved and what God is doing. And they're saying God was, God was active saving Gentiles and doing amazing things among Gentiles, non-Jewish people, way before these teachers came down and started to say Jesus is not enough. 
Okay? Obviously, God thinks Jesus is enough because he's been doing amazing things among the Gentiles without this false teaching. Okay? So that's kind of why they're, they're talking about all this. God is not concerned that Gentiles follow the law of Moses the way that these false teachers are saying. So now these false teachers, the heretics that I'm calling, um, the heretics, they, they speak up. Listen to this, verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, Anybody remember the Pharisees? You ever read the New Testament and read about the Pharisees? Who killed Jesus? Pharisees. They were in on this. All right. Were the Pharisees really excited about the law of Moses? Yeah. That was the way of salvation for them. All right. They believed if you kept the law of Moses perfectly, then eventually Israel would overthrow Rome and they'd come to the top and be God's special people again. Right? So... The Pharisees were, were, were saying this. The Gentiles, verse 5, must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. See? It's not just circumcision there. They want the whole thing. The entire law. This would include keeping the Sabbath on Saturdays. The feast days of Israel, they should be celebrating Passover the way we do. They should be keeping all the food laws of Israel. No pork, you know, kosher. They've got to be eating kosher. Everything. All of it. All right? Now, I want you to, I want you to understand this, right? If, if the Jerusalem Council had made a different decision on this day, you and I would not be eating pork. <laughs> like, okay, maybe not, but like, this is this is a big deal, all right? This is huge. The Seventh-day Adventists uh, who don't eat pork and stuff, they, they don't, they need to go back and read this. Seriously. Um, they, there's all kinds of weird stuff there. But anyways, point being, um, we don't need to keep the law of Moses. That's what this is going to be all about. The Pharisees, there must have been a bunch of them who realized, whoops, we killed Jesus, and God raised him from the dead. Jesus is the Messiah, God's anointed king come. He is the real son of God, the son of David, and we're going to follow him now. So there's Pharisees that have started following Jesus, but they have tons of weeds in their thinking still. Right? There can be somebody that knows the truth, but they have weeds in their thinking, right? But, but, and some of those weeds might be become so big, you ever had a weed that got so big that it choked out your garden? Some of you are like, yeah, that's what my garden looks like, right? Well, this is why it's dangerous, because weeds tend to spread like wildfire when they go to seed. And there's weeds being sown, weed seeds being sown in Antioch. Well, these Pharisees have weeds in their thinking, and they think that just... These Gentiles need to start becoming Jewish to follow Jesus by keeping the law of Moses. So now we're going to see, um, they start considering this question together, and the two, the two opinions have been put before them. And so now they're going to talk about it, and Peter's going to speak. So look at verse 6. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among the, gent 
among you, that the Gentiles might hear from my lips, Peter's lips, the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them. God accepted non-Jewish people by giving the, the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. So in Acts 2, the Spirit came on Jewish people. We learned about that. In Acts, um, also, I'll just read the next verse and then we'll pause. He did not discriminate, verse 9, between us and them, for he purified their hearts, Gentile hearts, by faith. So do you remember this story back in Acts chapter 10? The story of Cornelius. Okay? That's another one I was like, that's another episode in the series. Right? Back in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius was a Gentile guy, worked for the Roman army actually, and Peter was called by God to go speak to the, the, the leader Cornelius to go into his house, even though no Jewish person was supposed to go into a Gentile's house. Gentiles were dirty, unclean, uncircumcised, they ate gross stuff like pig, and they, 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 they ate raw meat, you know, meat with blood in it, and they were unclean, dirty. Don't go into their house. And God says to Peter, go into his house and tell them about Jesus. And when Peter tells them about Jesus, while well, he's still talking to them about Jesus, they trust Jesus. And guess who comes into the house with Peter? The Spirit of God comes into the house in a mighty way. The guys speak in tongues. They're moved. They trust Jesus. They start singing to the Lord and praise. So all of a sudden, God's like purifying the Gentiles himself. And so that was Acts chapter 10. And Peter is referencing this story. And he says, God didn't discriminate between us and them. He purified their hearts, not by circumcision, getting rid of the flesh with a knife, but by faith, by trust in Jesus. God, you can cut off your hand and you're not going to stop sinning. You can gouge out your eyes and you can still have lust and greed in your heart. Right? Right? The external operation is just a sign of an inward need to deal harshly with what's wrong with us. And God is going to do that in our hearts by the Spirit, giving us a new desire to follow Him. And that's what Peter's saying happened to these Gentiles. And because God did this, look at verse 10. Because this happened, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke, a heavy yoke, that neither we nor our ancestors, our Jewish ancestors, have been able to bear. That was the heavy yoke of law-keeping. In other words, what Peter's saying is, even the people of Israel were not able to keep the law of Moses. The whole story of the Old Testament is the story of their failures. In fact, that's the point of the first five books of the Bible, the, the, the Torah. The, the whole point of the Torah is... Israel can't keep the law. They need God to do a heart operation. It's very funny because we think the point of the Old Testament when God gives all these laws is keep them perfectly. But when you read the whole story in context, Moses, at the very end, in Deuteronomy chapter 31 and 32, he teaches the Israelites this song to sing. And this song is basically, we're going to fail, but God's going to come and rescue us at the end of days. Like, that's the song of Moses. We're going to mess up terribly. God's going to come and fix this. And that's what's happening here. Israel failed. They couldn't bear this burden of the law. All these perfect, all these rules to keep. The law was supposed to show them their need 
for a rescuer, for a heart change, a heart operation, and that has come through the Spirit. The Gentiles don't need to go back to the laws of Sinai to be rescued, and Jews don't either for that matter. Now verse 11, no, says Peter, we believe it is through the grace, the gift of our Lord Jesus that we're saved just as they are. Saved by grace through Jesus, not by keeping all the rules that Moses laid down, which were for Israel's good, but they couldn't do it. Every human is saved that way. Now verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as now Barnabas and Paul chip in and start telling about the signs and wonders God has done among the Gentiles through them. So again, the focus here of what Peter says, what Barnabas and Paul are saying is that God is doing amazing things among non-Jewish people. Thousands and thousands of people are trusting in Jesus, following Jesus, stopping worshiping idols. Their lives are being transformed. And all of this happened apart from obeying the law, the way, the, coming under the law of Moses and becoming Jewish. And now we're going to see another key leader in Jerusalem stands up and weighs in on the issue. James speaks. James, the brother of Jesus Christ himself. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, that's another name for Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. That was Cornelius back in chapter 10. Now, verse 15, he said, the word of the prophets, that's the Israelite prophets who spoke to Israel and their writings are written down for us in the Old Testament. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, after this, I will rebuild, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. So, pause a minute. Um, when you and I quote from the Bible, or if you quote from the Gettysburg Address or from, you know, whatever document you want to quote from, usually you cite your source by giving a verse or a reference. You ever read a footnote? Sometimes you'll say the name of the author you're quoting. Well, here James doesn't do that because James isn't just drawing from one place. He's drawing from Amos chapter 9, verse 12, and quoting some of that. But he's also drawing from Isaiah, and he's drawing from Jeremiah. That's why he says the prophets say this. And he strings these quotes together to make one basic statement about what the prophets say about the future of non-Jewish people in the people of God. What James is basically saying is he said, guys, the prophets taught us that when God finally rebuilds the kingdom of David under a new Davidic king, that's King Jesus, the son of David, the one born in Bethlehem, the city of David, when that happens, all the Gentiles will bear the name of God, just like the Israelites once did. That's what the prophets say. And then James goes on, verse 19, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. In other words, don't strap on their shoulders the, the law of Moses. Instead, we should write to them, telling them, and this is interesting, abstain from food polluted by idols, abstain from sexual immorality, 
from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. There have been many books written about what does this all mean, right? So James has just said Gentiles don't need to keep the law of Moses to be saved. They don't need to be coming under this difficult yoke of the law. But then he says something interesting. Even though the leaders of the Jerusalem church aren't going to ask the Gentile believers in Antioch and all over the ancient world, really, and us today, even though they're not going to ask them to come under the Mosaic Law, they're going to ask them a few things. Don't touch food that's been polluted by idols. Don't live in sexual immorality. Don't eat meat that has blood in it. Meat from strangled animals. You ever snared an animal before? The meat stays... And the blood stays in the meat, doesn't drain out. So the first couple laws, I think, are pretty understandable to us. Anyone familiar with the ethical code of Jesus is pretty familiar with these first laws. Um, no sexual immorality, yeah. Stay away from false gods, yeah. Right? That's what we're seeking to do. That's at the very heart of obedience to Jesus, is we worship Jesus and not other spiritual beings, and we try to live our lives in every way according to Jesus' calling, including sexual faithfulness. But what about strangled animals? Are people who snare and eat animals nowadays or eat rare steak? If you like rare steak, like raw and wriggling, no, um, if you like that, is that, like, is that wrong? Is that immoral? It might get you sick. Well, according to the law of Moses, Jews were not supposed to eat or drink blood. God required them to drain it out. That's all over Leviticus, Numbers, the law of Moses. Because blood symbolized something's life, and all life belongs to God, not to us. Right? That, that was kind of the symbol there. So James is telling these early non-Christians, don't drink blood. And he gives the reason in verse 21. Is the reason because he wants them to keep the law of Moses for its own sake, to honor God? What's his reason? Verse 21. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Jews all over the world are familiar with the law, so just don't eat blood. And then the other things, too. Um, it seems there's two concerns going on here in James's recommendation. Two things he's really concerned about. First, he wants them, these Christians to stay away from worshiping idols, getting tangled up in false gods and from immorality. And then second, because the law of Moses is read all over the place, everybody's familiar with this, and Jewish people everywhere know the law, Gentile believers should at the very least respect, try to respect their, their Jewish neighbors and fellow Jews in the churches of Jesus by not doing something like consuming blood, which would make them really upset. Most modern teachers of the Bible kind of land there. They think that's probably what's going on there. For the sake of Jewish people, try not to um, do this one thing that would make them really upset. But there's another piece to this that a lot of teachers have pointed out that I've found helpful. All of these activities were activities that were central to pagan worship of false gods in idol temples. 
you would go to the temple of an idol, and you would offer the idol a sacrifice. And then at this temple of Zeus or Aphrodite or whatever the ancient god, you would, you would eat that sacrifice with the god. Like, we're having a meal together. And so the meal, would, the food would be polluted by idols. Now, Christians, this could be really tempting because it's like, well, we know that there's only one God, and man, this steak looks good. So let's, let's, let's go, and it'll be okay. God, God, it, God made the cow. But the problem is, the whole context is a context of idol worship. And so Paul is taking this very seriously. He wrote about this a lot in his letter to the Corinthians. We worked through that a few, about a year ago. Um, but the point here is that stay away from that and away from idol temples in general. And there you would also drink the blood of the sacrifice. And you would um, often hook up with temple prostitutes. None of this is appropriate for the people of God. And so James is basically saying this whole cluster of things that all have to do with going to temples and worshiping idols. All of it's connected. And so then what we see next, and James is just saying, guys, stay far away from these things. You will do well to stay away. And so what we see next is that the church in Jerusalem, following James' advice, they draft a letter about this to the Gentile believers. The letter. So verse 22, then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Um, they chose Judas called Barsabbath and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, we have heard that some went out from us without our authorization. This is important. The Pharisees, they were going rogue. They weren't authorized by the church to go out and do this. Um, and in verse 24, they disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. Um, the disturbance would be, maybe we're not really Christians. Yeah. Maybe we're not really following Jesus, right? So they disturbed them. Verse 25. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food, sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. So there's not much to add here to what I said earlier, other than to mention that the, the order of things that the Gentiles are to avoid has been switched a little bit in the letter from what it was earlier. Um, what ends the list is sexual immorality. The food sacrificed to idols heads the list. Perhaps because these two requirements were the ones that the Gentile believers would most readily accept. Because it's in line with what Paul and Barnabas had already taught them. Stay away from idols. Stay away from sexual immorality. But in the middle, sandwiched between these two requirements they agreed on, were the two requirements having to do with blood that they may have wondered about. Because this is one of the only places in the New Testament this shows up, right? This isn't like a normative teaching. It seems like this is having to do with trying to at least do a little bit of a token to keep the peace. Don't do something that's really going to tick them off from the law of Moses. Don't just rub in the face that you're not under the law. Don't, don't do that. Stay away from it. That would cause division in the church. 
and it is a practice also that's really closely tied to idolatry. So you would be wise to avoid it. And because of this, I don't think that this guideline to stay away from like like raw like rare steak. Like if I go to uh, Red Robin and say I like my burger pink, I don't think I'm violating this. It has nothing to do with what the original concern was here. Does that, does that make sense? All right, Hope, hopefully. Ask me questions after. If you, or come to sermon discussion next week and give me your whole list of questions where we go over. Final thing here, the resolution. The men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Whew! We don't have to be circumcised. I mean, I'd be relieved, right? <laughs> Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time with them, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. So, as we wrap up our time this morning, we need to come full circle to the what question. What does this all mean for you and I today? The main point, if you remember, I wrote it down in the bulletin, is simple. Because God accepts you and I by the grace of Jesus through trust in him, we're not under the law of Moses in the Old Testament. However, this does not mean that Christians are lawless, that we're not under a law, or and it doesn't mean that the law of Moses doesn't have any application to us at all, that it's useless. You can throw out the first three quarters of your Bible, it doesn't matter. That's not what this is saying. Um, this is one of the biggest questions that the New Testament authors who are writing the last part of our Bible after Jesus came, they wrestled with this in their letters to all the churches. And this still has, Christians today are still trying to figure this out, right? What is my relationship to the first three quarters of my Bible? The Old Testament and the laws there. In particular, the law of Moses in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Well, as we saw from James and the apostles earlier, and as we've seen again and again in the book of Acts, these scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, contain everything we need to know about who Jesus is, why Jesus came, what it means to follow him. The prophets of old wrote it all down about the coming of Jesus, about the Gentiles being brought in to the people of God through faith in the king of the Jews, Jesus. And so, I'll ask you today, do you know who Jesus is. The Bible is obsessed with who Jesus really is. Amen. Do you know who he is? That's what it's all about. If you don't know who Jesus is, I encourage you, go home, read the Gospels. That's kind of like starting at the beginning of the movie trailer, right? Read, read about who Jesus is in Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. Talk to somebody who knows Jesus. Talk to me. We, we can't Avoid this question, living in light of the coming of Christ. We've got to find out who is Jesus Christ.
Who was he? Is he who he said he was? Or was he just some crazy guy who died for a dream? Who was Jesus? The scriptures point the way to who Jesus is. But what about the Mosaic law? All the rules given to the people of Israel. There's 613 of them. They're recorded in the law code of Moses. Why 613? Well, the Jews did this fun thing where numbers correspond to letters. And so, does anybody know what 613 spells? Law. Torah. Law. Right? It's just a clever way of saying that. And you know any nation, right, would have tens of thousands of laws. How many laws does America have? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> How many laws do we actually follow or know? That, I mean, the, the law codes are incredibly complex, right? Israel probably didn't have that many. But what we have recorded for us in the Old Testament is a sampling, Torah, 613 of them, that are examples of what loving God and loving neighbor looks like back in that context. That's why Jesus will say things like, love fulfills the law. When you learn to love God and love neighbor the way Jesus is calling you to, you will fulfill, you will keep the law. All of it is for us in that it gives us wisdom about how to follow God and how to love neighbor. But we are not under it in the same way that the Jews were, having to obey every letter of it. Christ has fulfilled the law for us. So these are really complex issues, all right? And every law has to be taken on its own, and we have to ask, how does this one of the 613 apply to us now through Jesus? Well, don't commit adultery. Well, that, that's in the Old Testament law, and Jesus ramps that up and says, there's a, such a thing as adultery in your heart. God's concerned about the heart. Cheating on your spouse with your eyes, not just your body. Right? This is serious stuff. Jesus ramps up the law of Moses, going to the heart of the matter, linking greed with adultery, lust for things that are not belonging to us in the heart. Don't murder. Well, that's a easy one from the Ten Commandments, right? Go, you know, Jesus, Jesus so says even anger in the heart is a form of murder. If you wish your brother's dead in your heart, right? And so the law all applies to us in just different ways because the law also says we often, when, when we sin, we got to offer sacrifices, blameless animals in our place. We don't have to do that anymore. Jesus is our sacrifice. And so each law has to be looked at through the lens of Jesus' coming and how he has come shapes how we view the law because Jesus is the king that the law pointed to. And so we now are under the law of the king, not the law of Moses. It's a different covenant that we're under, a different way of relating to God. We're part of the new covenant through faith in the blood of the king. So as we close, I want to take us to our time in communion this way. Remember, Jews were not supposed to eat blood under the law of Moses. Um, 
and drink blood. Remember, remember some of you may be familiar with this. Um, in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus, um, the crowds are starting to get really big following Jesus. And they're just all there to see the fireworks show. They're just there to see Jesus really stick it to the religious leaders. And they're there to see people get healed and all the excitement. And so Jesus decides to kind of, you know, you know what a mic drop is? Boosh! Like one of those mic drop modes. Or, or like clear the house type of thing. Right? Jesus starts saying things like, if anyone wants to be a part of my team, they've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Back away slowly. <laughs> right? That, that's, that's crazy, even if, you know, you, you think drinking and eating blood is okay. Right? Jesus is saying, you've got to break the law of Moses, right? And they're like, whoa, where did this come from? Now Jesus is, and then, then, then people, then his disciples are like, sure, you don't mean that, right? And Jesus is like, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. What? What's going on? And then you see here, right, we have a symbol that we're going to be looking at in a minute of the, the bread and the cup. Jesus' bread, the bread is his body, the cup represents his blood. God forbid, under the old covenant, eating blood, drinking blood, it was a symbol. Life is in the blood. Like, if you lose all your blood, you're dead, right? You need blood to live. Life is in the blood, and the life belongs to God. He is the giver of life. Life doesn't belong to you. You can eat the meat to live, but the blood is God's. That's, that's the idea. Okay, because life belongs to God. But when God gives us his son, Jesus is God's very life giving for us. He is the one life that we can eat and drink, symbolically. Not, not uh, like we're actually drinking Jesus' blood or eating his flesh. It's a, it's a symbol, a symbol of we are receiving the life of God that he says is for us. Jesus' life is for me and for you. Now, we're going to pass this out in a minute. Johanna is going to play something for us on the piano as we just quiet our hearts before the Lord. And, and I'm going to ask Carl and Karen if you would pass out the bread and the cup. But before they pass it out, I just, I just want to say this. This is, this is for you if... You have put your faith and trust in Jesus, and you've received his life for you. If, if that's not true of you yet, we just encourage you to sit there, let it pass by, and just think about who Jesus is. And whether or not you would want to make the decision to follow him. So Carl and Karen, if you would pass this out. Just quiet your hearts and reflect on Jesus and the life he gave us.